you're seeing here is a group of people that want to passionately and enjoyably love and serve and worship Jesus. And uh, we believe Jesus, as you heard in the video, is the one thing that has to be attached to us as citizens of his kingdom, as us of redempted, redeemed citizens of who he has bought and purchased by his blood. And so we worship him a lot of ways. You saw some of those through singing songs that, that praise his name and speak of the work that he's done. We do it by picking up the Bible and just preaching the scriptures and reading the scriptures and teaching the scriptures because we want to know what, what Jesus has to say because he's the center point to this book, so he's the one that all of the scriptures circle around and orbit around, so we want to know what every text is saying about this Jesus. We also worship Jesus by, by giving because we love to be generous because he's been generous to us, and uh, the last sun, Sunday of every month, we actually give benevolence, so just keep note of that. That'll be the black box in the back. It'll be labeled benevolence. Our normal offering is in the silver boxes on the walls, uh, so thank you to those of you who uh, just give generously in that way towards the mission that God has called us to. Uh, we also love to worship Jesus by taking what's called the Lord's Supper. We do that every week because it's an act of worship. It's a gift and grace to us as his people. We can tangibly see and remember and celebrate and receive from Jesus and all that he has done in accomplishing the salvific work for us. So um, let's pray, then we're gonna dive into Luke chapter 11. God, thank you that you alone can illuminate hearts and revive dead hearts and make them alive. God, we need your Holy Spirit right now to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, we treasure and appreciate the righteousness gifted to us this morning more so than when we came in this morning. Father, I pray for those who are walking in deep burdens with deep sorrow that you may point their eyes to something more majestic and more beautiful and more enjoyable today. God, shape us and form us as a people that love you and want to make you known. God, would you grow us in maturity? Would you grow us in the likeness of your son? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter... 11, and uh, here's what we're going to see this morning is um, Jesus is going to have a dialogue with um, the people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, were a group of people, kind of the religious elite of the day, and what they did was they taught that based upon all that you do and all that you're, you merit and all that you attain is what basically builds up for you righteousness, and they had these scorecards. They would look around at everybody else and see how good they were on a given week or how good they were on a given week, and then they would base upon what they saw other people doing, how righteous they felt, and Jesus consistently comes along and is harsh with them. Now, here's what's so encouraging, really. You'll, you'll see this throughout the gospel ministry of Luke's account and really every gospel, which is Jesus is very gentle, loving, compassionate with those who are keenly aware of their sin and their need for grace, right? He, he loves them. He loves the people caught in adultery who are aware of that being sin. He's aware of those people who see their desperate need, who are poor, broken, blind, and oppressed. From Luke chapter 4, to borrow those words from the Sermon on the Mount we heard a, about a year ago, right? We were Luke chapter 4. He's saying those people who understand their utter depravity in their sin find grace, hope, and mercy. Those of you who think you can do it on your own, who boast in what you've accomplished, I'm going to be harsh with you. That's why you see even in the New Testament, God opposes those who are proud. Right? So if there's a terrifying trait to have as a person, it's a proud trait. It's to be prideful. Because that is fundamentally why we sin, because idolatry is us thinking in our pride that we are better than God, that we know better than him, that we put ourselves on the mantle of our hearts and our lives and not the God of the universe who made all things and orchestrates all things. And so here you're going to see Jesus go after these Pharisees that they're always there to criticize, never there to learn. So they invite Jesus over to have lunch with them, and Jesus has a dialogue. And understand something, that their religion, these religious elite, their, their, their beliefs, their religion was totally external. 
And so what they would do is they would exacerbate or exasperate all of their external looks so that they felt more holy and more righteous than others. And here's the thing, they weren't righteous at all. They were very simply moral. There's a big difference, right? You can be super moral. You can nail the Ten Commandments, you know, more times out of the week than other people. You can look better, avoid divorce, avoid adultery, kind of pin down your lust. You can do all those things, but that's just morality. That does not intrinsically change what's necessary in your sin-sick heart. And so Jesus constantly comes along and says, I came to do a surgery on your heart, not just fix you on the outside. I came to do what was necessary on the inside. And so these religious people love just adding rituals and laws and ceremonies to what God's teachings were to make them appear more righteous. So you've got like 613 laws in the Old Testament, and they said, hey, I think we need more. So they just added extra rules and extra laws and put them on people and burdened people with all of these things that they wanted to do to appear more holy. And here, Jesus comes along and basically explains to them why that is vanity and why that will be an exhausting road to travel on. And how, yes, we're called to obedience, and yes, we're called to internal holiness and external holiness, but it's done not out of fear, but out of delight. So look at verse, chapter 11, verse 37. Here's what happens. Jesus was speaking. He's, he's teaching like he would always do, and a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Okay, so, so out of the gate, the Pharisee says, hey, Jesus, why don't you come over for lunch? The guy comes over for lunch, and right away, he's just totally mortified because he doesn't use hand sanitizer before he's eating. Okay, now this isn't the Pharisee being a germaphobe. This isn't the Pharisee being worried about, you know, proper sanitization. This was a symbolic religious act. This was another code they put in their book, the, the Mishnah, which is basically this, the first oral code, oral code written down for Jewish traditions and laws and rituals. And it basically said that you must wash your hands before dinner to keep yourself clean, to keep yourself totally pure, totally holy. And so Jesus comes in, doesn't wash his hands at all, doesn't sanitize them with his pure and he starts grabbing the food, and this guy's like, Jesus, you didn't wash your hands. Now, now let, me, let me let you feel the weight of this. If you go and actually research what they wanted you to do, they wanted you to fill up water the size of an eggshell, an eggshell, make sure it was an eggshell, crack the top, put it in, drip it over your fingers, let it run down your arms, and then wash yourself for at least 60 seconds to more than a minute, so then you're clean and you can use the food. You imagine? You guys show up to our house, hey, here's the eggshell. Put the water in, right? Drip it over your fingers. Do you see how it's just embellished? And this is what they would do. And so understand, Jesus isn't being intentionally rude. <laughs> I mean, the Pharisee could have said, hey, Jesus, when you come in, could you wash your hands? You know, we got a stomach bug going around. Pastor Mike was here. So can you keep it, keep it nice and clean? No, he's teaching. Jesus is always teaching. And he, he's basically saying, hold on, if you think by me sticking my hand in this makes me unholy or unclean, then your system must be wrong, because anything that makes you holier than Jesus is wrong. And to reveal their corrupt system, he uses an appropriate illustration that you would have when dining at a meal. Look at what he says in verse 39. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. 
Okay. So what they did is they're exasperating the external to hide the reality of the internal, right? They never wanted to deal with the issue of their hearts. Jesus goes, okay, hey, this is basic. We're sitting in a meal. You got a plate in front of you and a cup. Now, now which are you going to clean? Which do you care about? Which does the average person sitting down care about? Now, I bet many of us, if you went to a meal and you were dining somewhere, you wouldn't care so much so as what the underplate looked like as much as where the food was going, Right? I mean, if the undercarriage of the, of the plate is dirty, I mean, who really cares? I mean, but if the top is dirty, like, man, give me a new plate. Same with a cup. I mean, who really cares about how much the outside's clean as much as the inside? The inside is where the drink is going, so I want to make sure the inside's clean. And he's using this illustration, I love this, because he's showing them that their external morality doesn't deal with what's gone wrong inside. You're cleaning the part of the plate that doesn't matter. You're cleaning the part of the cup that doesn't matter. It's pointless if you've got a dirty inside. He's going, you guys know the God of the Old Testament. You know that he wanted you to be holy. You must know out of anybody that, yes, he wants you externally holy, but also internally as well. For he made the outside and he made the inside. He created all things, so surely you shouldn't be missing this. And so what Jesus is getting at is give, give me your heart. Your heart needs to be purified. Your heart is arrogant. Your heart is angry. Your heart is self-righteous. Your heart is bitter. Your heart is, and you're not bothering dealing with that. You're just making the external parts of you look really good to everybody else. And that's how you boost up your feelings of approval and self-righteousness based upon how you look. That's why he talks about giving alms. Do your charities. When they would go do their charities, man, they would actually have a trumpet. They would line up and blow, letting everybody know they were giving. Can you imagine if you went to the box in the back and you pulled out your ram horn? You're like, you know, hey, everybody, I'm giving. I mean, that's what they would do. It was insanity. I mean, they just wanted everybody to see them. They wanted to be revered. They wanted to be noticed. All they cared about was all the religious activity had to be seen by people. So as people saw them, they felt better about themselves as they looked down on others who didn't do what they did or gave like they did. It would boost them in righteousness, and they would think that is gaining favor when really it's damning them. Really, they're leading themselves to hell, not to heaven, farther away from Jesus, not towards Jesus. It's a, it's a a powerful thing that Jesus is getting at. This is why in Amos, you can read the prophet Amos, God speaks through that prophet and says, hey, 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 stop your songs. Hey, your hearts are off. So get your hearts right, and then you can start singing again. Then you'll be clean again. It's the same imagery. And so then Jesus reveals the heart issue. And here's the heart issue. They're man-centered, not God-centered. That's all. They care more about the praise from people and not the praise from God. Look at what he says in verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk all over them without knowing it. Jesus is going, your actions aren't sinful. Your motives are. Like, the stuff you're doing isn't bad, but your heart is so perverted in why it's doing it. You're obsessed with receiving praise and not giving God praise. They love that people would walk around and go, man, look at them tithe. Look at them give. 
That tithe was just a, a tenth of, in the Old Testament, where you give generously to God for his people and his purposes. And actually, they were only supposed to tithe oil, grain, and some of their cattle and livestock, maybe every third year to orphans and widows. But if you actually look in the Mishnah, it never even mentions, mentions rue. So they're not even holding to their own tradition. They're even embellishing and exasperating their own traditions, and they're going into their kitchen cupboard and tithing out of that. Could you imagine in the morning, you're like, hey, hey, babe, what do we owe this week, or what are we going to give this week? And she's like, hold on, let me cut my basil up. So she starts chopping the basil, take how much is a tenth of this basil, do you think, and you dump it in the box. I mean, that's how externally insane they became. Jesus is going, hold on, this isn't even in your tradition. No one's asking you this. Because they just love being seen by people. They loved seeing and getting applause. And then he says, your pride is so gross, you treat worship like a sporting event. Right? Hey, where's my seat? Anybody sits in my seat, man, they're out. Right? I'm going to get aggressive and hangry and... We see that today, even in here, right? I can't believe you're sitting in my seat. <laughs> it's crazy. Now, what he's actually speaking to is that these people, the big givers, actually sat in chairs with the big checks and faced the crowds. You actually had the Pharisees during the synagogue worship sitting on the stage, facing out, and it just made them feel even better about themselves, right? Because they're the big givers. Man, I wish I was a big giver like them because they get to sit in front and look at everybody else. That's why we don't have our elders sitting on the stage, <laughs> That's why we don't have, you know, the pastors here sitting in big chairs and looking at everybody else. Because they're people. And, and the one thing that marks us is grace and righteousness given by Jesus, not by what we give or our status or our role. Pastor is just a role. Does it make someone better than a member? It's just function. And, and here you see them just growing in, wanting to be elevated, noticed, revered, wanting to be somebody. And then Jesus says, you're so obsessed with this external reality and religion that you're oblivious to loving God and helping his people. He goes, man, what was the first greatest commandment? I mean, what was the one thing I said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you're so caught up in this, you're actually not loving your neighbor well. You're ignoring your neighbor. You're loving yourself more than God. You're not doing the fundamental commands of God because you're so stuck in all this religious activity you're trying to do and compare to other people. It's just amazing as, as he's walking through this, just kind of highlighting for them the issues of the heart and the vanity of going after external change without internal transformation. And he goes, man, you attend church, you put in the box, you have no love for God, no love for people. And he's not saying you shouldn't give. He's saying you should give, but out of joy, not out of what people will think of you. Because you love him. Man, you should be kind to your neighbor because you so want them to know the saving work of Jesus, not because you want them to see your good works. Hey, look at me, I'm a Christian. See my grass? See how nice it is? <laughs> you should be over there cutting your neighbor's grass. And then telling them about a righteousness that's been given to you that's not of your own. That's one that Jesus has given. And this is why Jesus says, and, and let me just ask for one minute. This is, a, this is a great just kind of heart check if you are living a gospel-centered life or a religion-centered life. What's your motivation for doing anything? Why do you give to this church? Do you secretly want people to know how much you give? 
Or do you genuinely, genuinely just give because it's a command from God? You know it grows you in releasing the idol of money. You know he's not after your money, he's after your heart. You know that it's a, a, a good thing to give to God's people and God's church. Or, or is it because, man, I just, I kind of hope someone asks or someone sees or it comes up a conversation. Why do you love people here? Mike addressed that last week beautifully. Are you trying to get something from them? Are you trying to win more friends or... Has the church become a club where, man, if I can get a lot of people around me to listen to me and why do you do anything? Why do you attend church in the morning? (laughs) So God will like you? He liked you the same in the slaughtering of his son before you walked in this room today. (laughs) It didn't change when you walked through those doors. (laughs) You get that? Like if you're a Christian... Like, he does not look down now more favorably upon you because you're sitting in the seat at a gathering. Like, we come to worship him, not to, not to look at ourselves and say, okay, maybe this is earning favor. Maybe some of you guys have always attended church in your life because you thought that was growing righteousness for you. You thought that's what God demanded and wanted. No, you really understand God is not after you with all your vigor and all your might trying to look more pretty. Like, that's not his goal. His goal is you see the ugliness and then see somehow that he loves you in that state because, you know, when you understand that and walk in that, you start learning what God is really like. You start seeing that his love and his mercy and his grace and his kindness is mind-blowing. So we come and we sit out of joy, not out of obligation, but out of delight because God sees us as righteous for those of us that have leaned into and trusted in the full weight and work of Jesus alone. And then we gladly come and we gladly serve and we gladly do, not because we want what people will see or how we'll be noticed. Who cares? Why do you pray? Why do you do anything? Because what they wanted, they cared more about how they were viewed by other people than God receiving praise from their own soul. That's a dangerous place to be. And this is why Jesus says in here, woe to you for you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Numbers 19 will talk about how God did institute not walking over graves to prevent illness and disease, but he also did it symbolically to show the purifying cleansing that you needed, which ultimately always pointed to the person and work of Jesus. So when a body was buried, he would say, don't walk over the grave. And if you did walk over the grave, you were declared ceremonially unclean for a week, and then you had to do washings for a week, and they put markers over the tombs make them white so you could see where the tombs were. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's reiterating this thought. Physically, you look alive. Physically, you look religious. You look upright. You look moral. I mean, externally, as people look at you and see you, you look really good, but internally, you're dead. You're physically alive, but spiritually dead. You don't love Jesus, you don't know Jesus, you don't enjoy Jesus, you don't want people to be coming to Jesus, you want people to be coming to you, so you can play the role of Savior, so you can play God of the universe. Powerful, and not only are you spiritually defiled, you're defiling others, right? You think you're leading people to Jesus, you're leading them away from me. You're actually blocking the path. Actually, through your external self-righteousness and all your good works, you're actually damning others. You're actually deterring them from the grace found in me by the ways that you boast and celebrate all that you do. This is incredibly challenging. 
Guys, I think some of this rolls into our discipleship, how we disciple others, you know, just as, as a faith family. Here's what I mean. When you meet somebody and you engage in ongoing walking with them with Jesus, I mean, how do you approach that? Because here's, here's my encouragement to you. You gotta see the progress and not the finish line. So if you're solely basing on what you see on what you see today and you're not seeing where they've been, you're gonna grow frustrated and some of us, right, with our, with our righteous hearts and all the external things we love, we don't like that they don't have an obedience or a righteousness that we have in our own life, right? So you forgot that they just learned what the book of Job was. It's not a book about jobs. It's actually about a person. So you know, you're trying to get them to memorize something. Or how come you don't understand this doctrine? How come you don't know this? Or how come you're not waking up every morning reading your Bible? How about you walk with them and see where they came from? How about you look at the progress? You look at the growth. Are they maturing? Are they increasing? We patiently come alongside each other. We don't slam down doctrines that we've known for years and expect them to get them in a day. There's patience. We're not religious elite. We're not looking at everybody else and going, man, how come you're not like me? How come you're not walking with Jesus like me? Well, hey, let's get on the road together. Hey, let's be patient together. Hey, what questions do you have? I know there are a lot in this room where this is very new to you. Even some of my sermons, you're like, hey, what's that word? I'm like, oh, shoot, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I need to explain that more for you. I'm sorry. Where instantly, sometimes I'm like, man, what do you mean you don't know what that word means? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't really, well, I guess I do mean that. Sorry. Now you know. Okay, so that, that's what's going on in my heart as we talk. But, but I love you, right? I mean, that, that's just what happens. I mean, in our discipleship, are you gracious? Are you walking? Are you loving? Or do you treat it like this religious experience? How do you care for people well in your discipleship here? Well, one of them's going to respond to Jesus because he's already in the doghouse, a lawyer. Lawyers were the guys that kind of made up these silly rules. They're the ones who added these regulations. So the lawyer decides to speak up as Jesus is talking. The one of the lawyers answered in verse 45, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. <laughs> he's insulted. Hold on. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he said, woe to you, lawyers also. Hold on. Let me include you. <laughs> For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. <laughs> the lawyer decides to speak up because he's already in the doghouse. He goes, okay, well, I kind of made these silly regulations, so I'm feeling offended now. So let me speak up and go, hold on, Jesus. No one's ever talked to us like this. No one's ever exposed our idolatry of morality like this. So, hey, you're insulting us. Stop it. Friends. Jesus looks at him and says, my teachings are light. They're simple. They're not overbearing. You're the ones adding to rules, to rules, to rules, to rules, and enslaving people and causing an overbearance of people. I came so your burden might be light. I came to free you from all of the enslavements to sin. I didn't come to add things on top of you to push you down and make you feel more guilty and condemned and unworthy. I slaughtered my son in your place, took the wrath that was meant for you, paid the debt in full that was meant for you to pay, and rose again validating I did it all, and I gift my spirit to those who lean and trust in that. <laughs> and as he's saying all this, the lawyer's going, I don't like what you're saying to me. You're insulting me. And friends, this is what happens when Jesus graciously confronts our idols. We get passionate, defensive, and sometimes angry. 
right? Because throughout the scriptures and throughout humanity, you're going to see this. Because what you defend most, you love most. And they loved their external religious acts of righteousness. And they hated that Jesus was condemning them for trying to find security in their external righteousness. And Jesus comes along and goes, hold on a second. Don't you see that that's damning, that that's not saving? I mean, what is it for you, the thing that you find total security in, total identity in, the second Jesus comes along and maybe graciously removes that thing or exposes that thing, normally the human heart's tendency is to get defensive, outright angry, or violent. You can't touch that. You can't take that. You can't, you know, Jesus, you can't do that to my heart. <laughs> right? No, that's off, that's off limits. You can address everything else over here, but don't, don't initiate, you know, my money issue or my greed issue or my lust issue or don't infringe on any of those things. Everything else is good, but the second Jesus, because he's so kind, because he doesn't love you just to take from you but to give you, because he doesn't rescue you to destroy you, he actually does that out of love, out of grace to free you and not enslave you. And so we say, Jesus, thank you, not respond like the lawyer who says, you're insulting me. I'm angry with you. How dare you attack the very thing that is my soul security in life? I love the way people look. I love my religious system. Man, don't infringe on that. But friends, don't take offense when Jesus does this. He does it to win you to himself. He does it to win you to more of himself. And I know all of us in this room, if we're a blood-bought citizen of the kingdom and God has graciously intervened in your life and exposed idolatry and removed it or misplaced it or done something, in the beginning, in the beginning walks of its stages, you feel the frustration, the anger, the confusion, and as you go, you see the hand of Jesus filling you with more of himself and his kindness towards you and graciously removing you from something that would destroy you and not lead you to life. And you learn to trust him more. And even if you ignore it, all the evidence is in that it doesn't work, that when you fight with them and pull with them and play tug of war, you know it doesn't work, all the evidence is in. So you can ignore that and keep falling down the exhaustive road, or you can finally surrender and say, you're in charge, you know what's good, you're the king of all kings, you're the one I should be fully worshiping and fully satisfied in, so however you see my life walking down this road, that's good for me, that's best for me, I trust you. I know it's natural, though to say, Jesus, you're insulting me. I don't like what you're doing right now. So the lawyer would have been best suited if he kept his mouth shut because Jesus is gonna keep going now. <laughs> he said, Jesus, on this, he says, woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. <laughs> Jesus is going. Hey, this, this living by moralism, this living by rules and additions to God's law, this is a longstanding problem. This isn't anything new. This is going on. And hey, remember the prophets that were, that were sent to people to tell them that there's one pathway to finding God ultimately through the ransom sacrifice of the Redeemer who would to come, the one who would crush the head of Satan from Genesis chapter 3. And you know what they did to those prophets? They killed them. They didn't like it. 
And you guys think because somehow you kind of built their tombs for them, your ancestors built tombs for them for these prophets that died, you think you're somehow now out of the the woodwork when really your heart is still in the same bad false system. You haven't changed. You're still a part of the system that wants righteousness for yourself from yourself and not from Jesus who gives it to you. So you haven't excused yourself because you simply built tombs for people who were killed in the name of the gospel. You haven't escaped that. Don't you see where you are today? You're still the same of the part of the same apostate system. <laughs> and just as I'm standing here telling you to repent, you know what you're going to do to me? Jesus is saying, you're going to kill me too. And what do they end up doing? Killing him. Thank goodness he's God and he raises back to life and <laughs> defeats Satan's sin and death and reigns victorious at the right hand of the Father and imputes his righteousness to those who are his and gifts his Holy Spirit to those who are his, adopts them into a family. (laughs) But he's warning them. He's going, you're the same in your heart. Now, are we hearing this? Like these guys aren't drunks. They're not adulterers. (laughs) They're not running around stealing stuff from 7-Eleven and Walmart. These are good upright, moral people. And Jesus is saying, you're so dangerous. You want to know why a religious heart, a self-righteous heart is so dangerous? Because you're blind to it. Like even right now, some of you guys, all you can think about is the person who should be here in the sermon. Oh, man, I hope Sarah's here. Oh, she could really use this, right? No, no, he's speaking to you and to me. The religious love to push off to the fringe. Oh, man, I'm going to go email this to my buddy. He was just making me feel really guilty the other day. He needs to hear this, right? No, he doesn't. You do. Self-righteousness, a religious heart is so damning because it's so delusional and you're so blind to it that the Holy Spirit of God has to illuminate your eyes. If he's gracious enough to show you that really all of us were this before the cross of Jesus Christ, we would be utterly grateful. This is one of the biggest destroyers in marriage I see. Right, when, when we walk with married couples in, in counseling and even after they get married, is it's a constant fight of, I do this and they don't do this. <laughs> it's constant religious heart. They don't study like me. They don't do this like me. They don't love me the way I need to be loved. doesn't respect me the way I need to be respected. Instead of a freedom, not an enslavement marriage, but a freedom, which is love is not just a motive. You're freed from that to love your spouse with covenant-keeping love like Jesus does for you in your sin. So now marriage is beautiful. Marriage is broad. Marriage is bright because you're not tied to your spouse in the way they indicatively live to you. You're tied to the gospel which roots you and grounds you. Now you're free to love, free to forgive, free to show mercy based upon no ways that your spouse responds to you. So you walk into marriage going, I'm going to love, I'm going to serve, I'm going to care for regardless of them because that's what Christ does for me. And so we see this all the time. A religious heart seeps up in marriage going, well, you don't do this, and you need to do this, and you need to be more faithful here, and more generous here, and more. The list goes on and on and on and on. And that is a train wreck for a marriage. 
where the husband or the wife becomes superior and more righteous than the spouse and says, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. Hey, let's pick it up. No, keep leaning and trusting and pursuing Jesus as he forms your heart and as your spouse sees him forming your heart and let them fall in line over time if it takes years. Because that's how God's designed it. And it's not easy, friends. (laughs) I have to catch my heart weekly with Kristen and Kristen with me when I see it seeping in and the game of comparison, and go, yeah, I gotta put that to death. I'm not being free right now. I'm not free to love, free to live, free to serve. I'm actually enslaved right now to what Jesus already freed me from. It's another sermon. Let's pick it back up in verse 47. Jesus doesn't let up. He keeps going. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets. Oh, I already read that. Verse 50. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Okay, so what he does is he takes two Old Testament martyrs, okay, who who died for the sake of righteousness. It's kind of like first to last, A to Z, Abel to Zechariah. And here's who Abel was. Abel was one of the first people born in human history from Adam and Eve, the first people to be created by God. And, And Abel was a worshiper of God. He had a brother Cain who was just a religious guy. And Jesus, or God says, hey, I want your offerings. I want you to bring me offerings. And Abel brings an offering and Cain brings an offering. And he accepts Abel's and he doesn't receive Cain's. He accepts Abel's because of what's in his heart that he brought. He doesn't receive Cain's because it is religious activity to him, and he doesn't have any worship or love for God. And so when God says, hey, I'm going to receive yours, Abel. I'm not going to receive yours, Cain. It's not an issue of what they brought. It's an issue of what they brought in their heart. It's always been about the internal. And so what does Cain do? He kills Abel. The religious guy kills the worshiper of God. You see it throughout human history. You get to Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet who is sent to expose the, the, the people to the idolatry they lived in. And what do they do? Everybody overthrows and stones him to death. So he's given them two examples that all of them would have known of these people that came preaching a righteousness outside of yourself to them for forgiveness of sin, and everybody just kills them. Nobody wants it. Just like they're sitting having lunch, not wanting it. They're totally blind to it. They're going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a cool story. Yeah, 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 that's a cool story. Man, you're insulting us. Stop it, stop it. Yeah, that's a cool story. Yeah, that's kind of right. Yeah, stop it. And they don't even see what Jesus is trying to drive home to them. And so Jesus eventually says at the end, you're going to feel the same judgment of God for all the accumulated slaughter of the prophets because you're joining the same apostate system that ignored their message and you're ignoring mine. That'll ruin a lunch. It'll be required of this generation. You're doing the same thing. You're not free. You're enslaved. That's why it says, verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus just keeps going. Don't you see the very thing that unlocks salvation, righteousness gifted to you, not earned? You're actually blocking people, keeping people from discovering that and hearing that. 
You're oppressing them with rules, oppressing them with merits, oppressing them with rights. Meanwhile, I'm coming. I'm ultimately going to die for the salvation of sinners who would trust in my name. My righteousness will be given to them. My death will cover their sin. My blood will be shed to forgive them of sin. All of that will happen, and you're blocking the path from them seeing the beauty that is my future work on that cross by making them think that how you look externally is the issue. The issue is not what you look like externally. The issue is what you look like internally, and no one wants to deal with the heart because immediately you know you're not clean. Right? Any of us externally can go, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of look good like this. I kind of, you know, obey better than that guy. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I don't know. I'm not an ISIS terrorist. I'm not, I mean, right? I mean, I'm, I'm walking a pretty good line. I mean, I'm faithful in my job. I mean, I kind of, I love my wife. I mean, I've got kids. I've, I care for them. I show up to church a couple times. I'm paying my dues. I'm, it's blocking you. That belief system is blocking you from the key that unlocks salvation, which is Jesus. It's not about your spirituality. It's about your identity being so wrapped up in the one who bought it for you that you couldn't buy yourself out of. And you see it all in the shed blood and purchasing work of Jesus. And so their religion is really perverting redemption. (laughs) It's keeping them from that. This is why, I don't know if you've read, Jesus says to these people again in other parts, I think it's in John, hey, you've studied the scriptures, you know all the scriptures, and in those you think you have life. You don't have life in those. You need to look at the one that they point to because it's me. I'm the one that life is found in, not the scriptures. You think, think because they hold the moral codes and they obey the 613 Old Testament laws pretty well that somehow they're earning and getting righteousness. And he's just saying, you're burdening my people. Verse 53, and as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. (laughs) Jesus leaves the prideful and self-righteous because there's nothing left to say. He said it all. Here's my warning to you, my encouragement to you. I pray you would not have a hardened heart, you'd have ears to hear, so Jesus doesn't just walk away. The self-righteous heart, the religious heart is so hardened to what they do and all their achievements and all that they love and the idolatry that they worship outside of Jesus that ultimately Jesus can say at any time, I'm gonna move on. Maybe some of you, he's got you here this morning in your seat for you to hear this, and he's trying to awaken and woo you to himself just by your simply being here. Don't harden your heart. Don't turn from the grace that is purchased for sinners who aren't righteous and who have internally sick hearts that need to be made alive in Christ. So Jesus leaves them, and I say that because at this point, at this point in narrative as you're reading it, they have a chance to repent, right? They could be going, hmm, man, I don't know, man, I, I'm kind of like Cain. Yeah, I'm kinda, we're kind of like all those guys that were killing prophets. I mean, yeah, we hate Jesus, and he, he says he's a prophet from God. I mean, we want him dead. I mean, they had a chance to repent in this moment. And what do they do? The truth of the gospel does not humble them, causes them to have hatred. Some of you are being fed the good news of Jesus and it only wells up hatred in you and not humility. Jesus is kind. Jesus is trying to get across something beautiful to them. They grow in hatred. So instead of humbling themselves as Jesus exposes their idolatry, they chase him going, man, let's try to catch him. Let's find him preaching out of context, saying something that doesn't make sense so we can ultimately have him killed. 
And that's what they do. You'll see the remainder of Luke. We've been seeing this throughout this passage because they love their worship of their religion. They love their belief system that all that they do achieves righteousness. They don't like that someone else does it for them, and so they want him dead. Now, here's where I want to land the plane. Um, if, if you guys are churchgoers, there might be a verse that's kind of coming up in your head right now. If you're not a churchgoer, here's something that Jesus says. Jesus says something profound in the book of Matthew. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of a Pharisee, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? Okay, now you're start, it's starting to click why he said that, right? Because if you're living in this day or you're living around these people, you know that externally, if there's someone who's got down external transformation, who is following the law, who is obeying ritual and right, who looks ceremonially clean all the time, you know it's these guys. And Jesus comes along and and goes, hey, if your righteousness exceeds theirs, okay, then you're in. If it doesn't, then you're not in. You're going, there's no way. I mean, these guys would walk around with their heads down, not to lust, bumping into stuff. I mean, these guys are tithing out of their kitchen cupboard. Wouldn't you bring, you bring your tomato today, did you? If there was a Pharisee here, he'd be cutting up his tomato, putting it in the box. I mean, it's insanity. You'd be going, these guys are unbelievable at their external obedience. I haven't done that. I haven't done that. I haven't done that. And without a knowledge of the gospel, that's a terrifying statement, isn't it? Jesus saying, be perfect as I am perfect. Without a knowledge of the gospel, that's a terrifying statement, isn't it? (sighs) So here's what happens. You hear you need righteousness. The religious person says, cool, I'll find ways to achieve it, and then I'm going to keep score. So you got your scorecard, we're gonna keep score. Hey, did you cuss this week? No, I, I, did, I did better, two points. Hey, did you uh, drink a beer? No, nope. okay, three points, I did better than you. Hey, did you commit adultery? No, nope. I got a touchdown, an extra point. That's seven for me, right? You just, and then here's what you do. This is what the Pharisees would do. They would look at heinous laws, moral laws, hard laws, soft laws. They would write down on their scorecards, each, and then they, they would compare them. Hey, how'd you do? How'd you do? And then they would boast in and grow in prideful arrogance, see, thinking it's righteousness based upon how they compared to everybody else. That's awful. That's not how Jesus calls us to live. And that's how they would live. That's why he says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. I've freed you from that. So you do it joyfully. Do it out of encouragement, not out of duty, but out of delight. So, so here you have all of this happening, all of these commands they're, they're doing. And this is what happens. If you keep reading Matthew 5, what does he do? He moves it from this external kind of look to this internal transformation. What does he do? He goes, hey, I know you said you shouldn't murder, right? Yeah, that's external. We can all see that. Hey, if you have anger in your heart, you basically murdered. Now we got an issue. Now I'm guilty. Now I'm not free. Right? He goes, yeah, no, no I know you, you hear the commandment is, is all about murder. All, I know you guys have avoided murdering anybody, but you've got some hatred in your heart. You're hating me right now. Jesus. And that's worthy of damnation. Do you know that? He moves from adultery to lust, doesn't he? Yeah, I know you can avoid adultery. Hey, do you know if you look at a woman lustfully, you're not free? You're guilty? You can avoid adultery all day long, and you can lust like crazy in your heart. 
Do you see what he's doing? It moves from, from divorce to faithfulness. You can go all the way down the line from Matthew 5. He moves from this external looking whatever to this internal something's wrong inside you. And unless you deal with that, you're never free. You're never right. You're gonna be lacking on the day of judgment. You gotta fix the inside so the outside goes with it. You deal with the anger, you'll deal with the murder. You deal with the lust, you'll deal with the adultery. You deal with the faithfulness, you'll deal with the divorce. Do you see how it goes inside out, not outside in? That, that, that's, what, that's why the gospel is such good news, because it deals with the root and not your branches. So you're not spending your whole life cutting weeds and chopping branches. You get at the root, which rips out the reasons that your heart is sick and not operating right, wires it to Jesus. So now you can walk in lanes that honor him and please him with a joyful, delighted heart. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to these guys. That's who he's saying that to in Matthew 5. You guys externally look so good, but you have this cycle that you can't get out of. That's why I think just a huge danger that plagues so many of us in American Christianity is that we're religiously lost. Even though you come every week and you hear that Jesus pays your debt in full, that he takes your sin and gives you his righteousness and absorbs the wrath of God, and you hear that week in and week out, and it does nothing internally. You still leave thinking, okay, I got to behave, I got to do, I got to perform, I got to do all those things if he's going to love me today. Instead of leaning into that and seeing that and letting that well up in your heart, gratitude to him, and transforms you from the inside as you walk in community and walk in the word and, and actually pay attention and think through and decipher what God is speaking to you in the scriptures and through preaching and through others, we just continue to live the same old seven day a week, Monday to Sunday, just trying to be prettier than the last week. How exhausting is that? What an awful, deep, heavy yoke is that? And this is why I just want to say this as we close. When all is said and done, you have no hope. Okay, maybe some of you guys are new, and I don't know if, I, if I've given credit yet to say this, so just, just hear me out and then stay for a few weeks. But you and I have absolutely no hope to escape the things that haunt us apart from fully submitting our lives to Jesus Christ. None. You have none. And here's why I want to follow that with these two things. Because there's no sin in this room the power of Jesus Christ on the cross can't conquer. There's no illness or, or embarrassment that the cross of Jesus Christ can't heal or cover. There, there's none of that. It's an offense to the cross to say, well, you can't deal with this, Jesus, or you can't cover this, or you can't give me victory over this. He proved it to you. So let me follow it with these two things. Number one, here's what that means. It's impossible to walk in a delighted submission to Jesus Christ if you're living in secret sin, if you don't ever confess your sin. Now, I know this seems like elementary 101 if you're a church person, but if you're a church person, you probably need to hear it again. Like if you're up at night late just perusing the internet while your spouse is asleep, or there's flirtation at work, or there's outright pornography addiction, or there's anger that's been boiling and being cast out in other ways, or if there's greed, I, I don't know what it is. If there is ongoing, unrepentant secrets in your heart and you refuse to confess it, you will not get rid of the things that haunt you. 
Because walking in glad submission to Jesus Christ is confessing your sin to him who pays the debt in full and to others. Some of you guys, maybe your first step in walking in glad submission to Jesus and not just as a religious person is confessing your sin and getting it in the light and thanking God that as you confess that heinous sin, he loves you in that state because of the slaughtering work of his son. And so you see more of the cross of Jesus Christ in your confession. You learn more about what God is like through your confession than just avoiding saying anything. Brothers and sisters, freedom Freedom is not everybody seeing you as pretty. Like, I think some of you guys buy that lie. You think to live in freedom is no one ever knows a weakness, no one ever sees a dark spot in me, no one ever needs to see it. Freedom to you is just everybody looks like everything is great for me. You come with a happy face every Sunday. You don't let anybody talk to you about anything. You put the fist out when they address anything in your life, and you are gonna continue to walk in those things that haunt you, and you'll never be free. Because here's the irony, right? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 says, that as you grow in holiness, you grow in humility, not haughtiness. So you're an oxymoron, an arrogant Christian. That makes no sense. If you're growing in and living in glad submission to Jesus, you welcome people and you love to confess the spots in you that aren't pretty. And then you're a Christian, one who acknowledges their sin and confesses her sin and knows that Jesus heals and cleanses that sin. Some of you guys, you're just straight up exhausted because you spend your whole life trying to protect a persona of you that isn't you. And you know it's exhausting. You know you lose steam. You know you're tired and weary of it. So tell a faithful member. Talk to a pastor. First talk to Jesus. Because here's what that does. If you live that way, it only cultivates fear and distance and not intimacy and worship. So your relationship with God only distances itself and there's a lot more fear instead of intimacy drawing in and worshiping God as you see him loving you in that state as you confess your sin. You know, the, the difference between the gospel and religion um, Religion hides sin at all costs, right? Um, the gospel confesses sin at all costs <laughs> because you know the bill's paid in full. So some of you this morning need to repent of your religion. You're arrogant. You think you're wiser than everybody else. You have an air of superiority. You think that all the things you do should be done by everybody else, and Jesus is saying, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Watch your heart. Some of you are constantly looking at everybody else and never looking at yourself, never looking at the dark spots in you. Some of you are irreligious. You just don't even care. You're apathetic. You're like the religious in a sense, but you're irreligious in the sense that, well, I don't really care that my sin offends God. And I would say, take that seriously this morning. Know that your sin sickness does offend him, yet he graciously provides a substitute in your place to take that for you and gift you his Holy Spirit. I don't know what it is that you, God is calling you to confess, to repent of, but may he graciously do that and restore to us the joy that is our salvation in him. 
Some of you are like, man, I don't even know where to start. Talk to somebody, grab me, grab a pastor, go, I got a lot of questions, can we meet? I'm trying to figure this thing out. It's kind of making sense, and let's walk. And this is why we're gonna observe the Lord's Supper for those of us who are Christians, because we love every week celebrating this gift and grace that Jesus has given us to tangibly see and remember. My Salvation, my righteousness, my forgiveness is done on nothing of me but solely the broken body and shed blood of his son. And we don't take communion because we fear more holy. We don't take communion because it's a ritual that we think we must do. We don't take it because we think this adds righteousness to us. There is nothing imputed to you by doing this. There is grace from Jesus, encouragement from Jesus. There is a presence of Jesus in the sense that he ministers to us and encourages us and comforts us in our sin as we take this and confess sin examine our hearts. That's why we do it. We do it because it's a gift. We do it because it's a joy. And that's why the scriptures will say, let's take some time to examine our hearts before we come to the table. And if you're not a Christian, you can't remember and celebrate what Jesus has done for you. And so we ask you not to come to the table, but to examine your heart. Cry out to God. Say, God, reveal yourself. Reveal the sin in me. Maybe I have been living thinking that I could make it externally, and I'm unaware of the the sickness inside, internally, that I see you came to rectify and change. And let's do that as a family. And then we're going to sing and worship him because he's worthy. I'm going to pray, and then as you feel right, you can come to the table and enjoy and celebrate the purchasing work of Jesus and his bloodshed for you. God, we thank you that you are a God that redeems sinners. We're so thankful that, God, you are compassionate and gracious and kind to those who approach you humbly, aware of their need for a substitute, aware of a need for righteousness outside of themselves. Father, would you graciously deal with those in this room who have been living a religious life and not a life centered on the gospel? Would you deliver those this morning who have been living an irreligious life, who have apathy in their heart and no sense for you, no sense for your holiness, no sense for your worth, that think that their sin is not a big deal? God, would you remind them that the same God that makes them holy in the inside makes them holy on the outside? Would you save them and allow them to walk in grace-filled and driven obedience? Father, would you give us patience with others? God, thank you for coming not for the righteous, but for the sinner. For we are in need, and we acknowledge that, that your love covers all of that. God, hear us. Receive this as a gift of worship. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.